For this year's Patel Memorial Lectures, I have chosen for discussion the question Kashmir Retrospect and Prospect. Yesterday, this is I discussed the historical, political, and constitutional background of Kashmir as it stood on the 15th of August, 47. Today, I propose to discuss the question about the validity of Kashmir's accession to India. And I also propose to discuss the reasons why India refuses to accede to the request for plebiscite. I have already shown how, on the 15th of August, 47, the Maharaja of Kashmir was, in constitutional terms, an absolute monarch, and it was within his competence to accede either to India or to Pakistan, or, if that was possible, to retain his independent status as a separate state. In fact, I have tried to analyze the causes for the extraordinary indecisiveness which the Maharaja showed on this occasion. And I have indicated how he was hoping against hope that both India and Pakistan would allow Kashmir to remain an independent state. When history was on the march in August 1947, it was inevitable that these utopian hopes and aspirations of the Maharaja would be defeated. Pakistan started putting pressure on the Maharaja, and when those pressures failed, it actually instigated and guided the invasion of Kashmir by the raiders. Faced with the grim problem raised by the advancing raiders, the Maharaja approached India with a request that Kashmir should be allowed to accede to India. The letter written by the Maharaja clearly indicates that he was determined to accede to India to save Kashmir from the terror of the freebooting invaders' army. The words used by the Maharaja in this letter are unambiguous. He unconditionally decided to accede to India. He no doubt explained how the invasion of his state had left him no option. But the decision, though based upon the extraneous fact of invasion, was the decision of the Maharaja, and it amounted to an unconditional offer to accede made by him in the undoubted constitutional power which he possessed as the ruler of Kashmir. This aspect of the matter is not open to doubt and, in fact, has never been doubted. India's response to the request of the Maharaja was also constitutionally correct and proper. Having received the offer of the Maharaja to accede to India and having taken into account the special circumstances under which Kashmir offered to accede to India, the government of India decided that it was their duty to accept accession and protect the integrity of Kashmir, which, after accession, became a part of India. The offer of accession having been made in a constitutionally valid manner, and the offer having been accepted in a constitutionally valid manner, 
the accession was complete and valid. It is indeed extraordinary that Pakistan should claim any local standard to challenge the validity of this accession, particularly when it is established by unimpeachable evidence that it was the impolitic, unwise, careless conduct of Pakistan herself which precipitated Kashmir's accession to India. The constitutional position about accession is not in doubt at all. The provisions of the Government of India Act 1935, as amended, which were in force on the 15th of August 47, specifically provided that an Indian state shall be deemed to have acceded to the Dominion if the Governor-General has signified his acceptance of an instrument of accession executed by the ruler thereof, whereby the ruler on behalf of the state declares that he accedes to the dominion with the intent as therein specified. The instrument of accession signed by Maharaja Harising on the 26th of October 47 satisfied this statutory requirement and this acceptance by the government of India on the 27th of October completes the act of accession. It is true that while accepting the instrument of accession executed by the Maharaja, Lord Mountbatten had stated that it was the policy of the government of India to decide the question about the accession in the light of the wishes of the people of the state. And so, as soon as law and order have been restored in Kashmir and the soil cleared of the invader, the question of the state's accession should be settled by reference to the people. In this very letter, Lord Mountbatten had significantly added that his government and he had noted with satisfaction that His Highness had decided to invite Sheikh Abdullah to form an interim government to work with his Prime Minister. Reading the letter of acceptance as a whole, there can be no doubt that it was not a conditional acceptance. It was a valid and final acceptance. It merely indicated to the Maharaja that when law and order were restored, the government of India would like to ascertain the wishes of the people of Kashmir in that matter. Indeed, the relevant constitutional provisions did not authorize a conditional acceptance of accession at all. Besides, in assessing the effect of the need to ascertain the wishes of the people to which Lord Mountbatten had referred in his communication, we cannot overlook the fact that Lord Mountbatten himself referred to the decision of the Maharaja to invite Sheikh Abdullah to form an interim government. Indeed, when I narrated the events leading up to the acceptance of Kashmir's accession, I quoted the testimony of the Kashmir Prime Minister Mahajan, which shows that it was only when Sheikh Abdullah supported Mahajan that Nehru decided to accept Mahajan's invitation to send the Indian army to Kashmir. The government of India thought, and I think rightly under the circumstances, that at the relevant time, Sheikh Abdullah represented the progressive national conference of Kashmir, which commanded the allegiance of an overwhelmingly large number of the citizens of Kashmir, so that it may be said with justification that when Sheikh Abdullah supported the request of Mahajan, that itself was evidence of the fact that the popular organization in Kashmir, which could have delivered the goods at that time, was in favor of accession to India. Sheikh Abdullah's attitude at the relevant time was clear. We realized, says Sheikh Abdullah, 
in his speech before the Security Council that Pakistan would not allow us any time, that we are either to suffer the fate of our kith and kin at Musparabad, Baramula, and other towns and villages, or to seek help from some outside authority. Under these circumstances, both the Maharaja and the people of Kashmir requested the government of India to accept our accession. It is in the light of these material facts that the question about the validity and finality of the accession must be considered. Lord Mountbatten had indicated the policy of the government of India to ascertain the wishes of the people after law and order were restored in Kashmir. As a matter of fact, soon after Kashmir's offer of exception was accepted, Sheikh Abdullah was put in power and, as I have already mentioned, the Constituent Assembly of Kashmir was called. It drafted and approved of the Constitution. Elections were held from time to time, and popular governments administered Kashmir in a democratic way with the assistance of popularly elected legislative chambers. I think it is legitimate to suggest that the election of the Constituent Assembly, followed by subsequent constitutional events already mentioned, can well be regarded as the ascertainment of the wishes of the people on the issue of accession. Of course, Pakistan suggests that the elections were rigged, but that is an allegation which can be conveniently made by Pakistan when these elections present an extremely inconvenient fact to the presentation of Pakistan's case. On the whole, I think, Sheikh Abdullah did speak for a vast majority of the Kashmiris when he said at a press conference in Delhi on the 18th of June, 1948. We, the people of Jammu and Kashmir, he said, have thrown our lot with the Indian people, not in the heat of passion or a moment of despair, but by deliberate choice. Regarding the legality of the accession in the narrow judicial sense of the term, says Michael Brecher, there is no doubt that with the acceptance my mount bought as Governor General of India of the instrument of accession signed by the Maharaja, Kashmir became an integral part of India. Such a procedure for accession was in accordance with the partition agreement. Moreover, it had the sanction of the Muslim League as evidenced by Jinnah's statements of June 17th and July 31, 1947 on the constitutional position of the Indian princes after the transfer of power. In regard to the argument that the acceptance of accession was conditional, Brecher says, that the statement made by Lord Mountbatten about the ascertainment of the wishes of the people did not in any way affect the legality of this act, which was sealed by India's official acceptance of the instrument of accession. Furthermore, Mountbatten specifically indicated that this Indian offer to seek the will of the Kashmiri people on the accession issue would be implemented only after law and order have been restored in Kashmir and the invaders expelled from that state. In a strict constitutional sense, the invaders are still squatting over a big portion of the former state of Jammu and Kashmir, and that would indicate that the stage for ascertaining the wishes of the people has yet to arrive. That, however, is a different matter. The point of substance is that the wishes of the people have been ascertained in the manner recognized by democratic countries all over the world. Even the American representative at the United Nations, Warren Austin, categorically stated as early as February 4, 1948, said he, 
the external sovereignty of Kashmir is no longer under the control of the Maharaja with the accession of Jammu and Kashmir to India. This foreign sovereignty went over to India and is exercised by India. And that is how India happens to be before as a, party, as a petitioner. The Soviet Union has consistently taken the view that Kashmir has legally, validly, and irrevocably acceded to India. At the 765th meeting of the Security Council, the representative of the Soviet Union clearly stated that the question of Kashmir has been settled by the people of Kashmir themselves. They decided that Kashmir is an integral part of the Republic of India. I therefore feel no hesitation in saying that considered constitutionally, legally, politically, and factually, the accession of Kashmir to India is valid, final, and irrevocable. It will be recalled that in the rejoinder to the complaint filed by India on the 1st of January 48, Pakistan had made a counter charge against India and had alleged that the accession had been secured by a fraud. Pakistan had also denied that she had anything to do with the invasion of Kashmir by the raiders. I have already indicated that this latter contention was not only untrue, but was positively dishonest. Let me now examine the allegation that Kashmir's accession was the result of fraud practiced by India. In determining the validity of this allegation of Pakistan, the first consideration which is relevant and which is definitely against Pakistan's version is the part played by the invasion of the raiders in persuading the Maharaja of Kashmir to accede to India. If Pakistan had not encouraged or instigated the invasion of Kashmir by the raiders, perhaps the Maharaja would have still continued to toy with the idea of an independent Kashmir. And so the invasion was the immediate cause for the Maharaja's decision to accede to India. Since this invasion is now shown to have been inst instigated by Pakistan, it is idle for Pakistan to contend that India acted fraudulently in obtaining Kashmir's accession to her. In this connection, the comment made by the economist this on the 13th of December 47 on Jinnah's misadventure in Kashmir is, in my opinion, very significant. Said the economist, it is probable, therefore, that Mr. Jinnah, by supporting the invasion of Kashmir, hoped to kill two birds with one stone, to annex Kashmir and to direct the aggressive energies away from Peshawar and the Punjab. Whether or not Jinnah succeeded in the latter object, I do not know, but he certainly failed in the first. The conduct of Pakistan preceding the actual act of invasion is also significant and eloquent. Let me very briefly refer to the relevant facts which preceded the act of invasion. On the 29th of July, 1947, Jinnah had assured the states that they were free to decide to accede either to India or to Pakistan or to remain independent. But after the partition took place on the 15th of August, a tragic and distressing movement of populations began, and that led to a terrible massacre of people on both sides. This Holocaust naturally had its impact in Kashmir, which was very near the scene of the tragedy that overtook Punjab. On the 22nd of September, a convention of Muslim conference workers formally demanded the accession of Kashmir to Pakistan. This was in direct contrast 
to Jinnah's declared approach in relation to the true constitutional position. And it was one of the first significant acts of the supporters of Jinnah to exercise pressure on Kashmir. In August, a revolt had broken out in Punch, and it called for some repressive measures on the part of the Maharaja. That raised the danger of communal disturbances. At this critical hour, the Maharaja appears to have been anxious to keep his state away from this the troubles which had erupted all around Kashmir. But his efforts failed, and communal passions disturbed the peace of Kashmir as well. It was when the clouds of communal disturbance thus threatened the horizon of Kashmir that Sheikh Abdullah came to be released on the 29th of September 47, along with some of his colleagues. Sheikh Abdullah immediately sensed the danger in the situation and put the whole of the secular army of his volunteers in the service of Kashmir to protect peace and harmony amongst the different communities of Kashmir. On the 3rd of October, Sheikh Abdullah made a very clear declaration about his attitude in the matter. He referred to the fact that he was a great friend of Nehru and that he held Gandhiji in great reverence. But in spite of all this, he said, my personal convictions will not stand in the way of taking an independent decision in favor of one or the other dominion. He added, our choice for joining the Indian Union or Pakistan would be based on the welfare of 40 lakhs of people living in Jammu and Kashmir states. But even if we join Pakistan, we will never believe in the two-nation theory which is responsible for so much poison in the country today. I assure the Hindus and Sikhs, he added, that as long as I am alive, their life and honor will be quite safe. We want people's raj in Kashmir. We want to establish such a government here as would ensure all opportunity to everybody without any prejudice to his class or his religion. Abdullah was clear that Kashmir could not immediately decide the question of accession to either dominion. A quick decision, he thought, would be incorrect and unwise. It is much more necessary at this present for Kashmir to secure recording. the establishment of full responsible government. That is the line which Sheikh Abdullah took at this critical hour, and his line substantially coincided, though for an entirely different reason, with the view which the Maharaja was taking in the matter. The Maharaja wanted to postpone his decision as to accession for reasons which I have already explained. Sheikh Abdullah agreed, though his reasons were entirely different from those of the Maharaja. This was the broad picture of the political and public life in Kashmir at the relevant time. It was at this stage that Pakistan decided to apply economic blockade to Kashmir. The Foreign Minister of Pakistan replied to the complaint made by the Prime Minister of Kashmir in that behalf by conceding that the supplies sent to Kashmir were being hindered. But that was owing to the driver's reluctance to carry supplies and the incapacity of Pakistan to spare troops for this purpose. The stoppage of supplies of essential commodities amounted to a blockade, which could have been inspired only by the idea of coercing Kashmir into accession with Pakistan. Having thus applied pressure in the form of economic blockade, Kashmir's Prime Minister was invited to meet Jinnah for a discussion of the existing problems between Pakistan and Kashmir. Prime Minister Mahajan 
stoutly refused to meet Jinnah until the blockade was raised. That was the next step which Pakistan adopted in coercing Kashmir. It is true that Safarullah Khan made bold to allege in the Security Council that the Maharaja of Kashmir had decided to kill a few thousand of the Muslims besides jailing the leaders and expelling a million or so Muslims from the state. That was the scheme which Kashmir had in mind. This allegation needs no this refutation. We cannot overlook report. the fact that more than 75% of the people in Kashmir were Muslims. And it would have been an act of lunacy on the part of the Maharaja to have entertained the idea of killing or expelling such a significantly large number of citizens from Kashmir. The theory of genocide, conveniently set up by Pakistan before the Security Council, is on a par with the plea made by Pakistan that she had taken no part in the act of invasion by the raiders. Both the pleas were totally untrue and even dishonest. The record shows that at the relevant time, Kashmir was loudly proclaiming her determination not to commit herself either to Pakistan or to India. That is precisely what Pakistan did not like. Pakistan was getting impatient to force Kashmir to accede to her because the Pakistani politicians apprehended that Sheikh Abdullah would, in due course, persuade the Kashmir government to accede to India. Time was in favor of Sheikh Abdullah, and in that sense, it was against Pakistan. That explains the tactics adopted by Pakistan. First, she started economic pressures, and when these pressures did not yield the expected result, she instigated the actual invasion by the raiders. It is interesting to recall that both Sadiq and Bakshi Ghulam Muhammad disclosed this position as early as December and November 1947. On the 10th of December, Sadiq stated that before the invasion, the National Conference had deputed him to approach the Pakistani government at the highest level to recognize the democratic rights of the Kashmiri people for self-determination and abide by the sovereign will of a free people on the question of free association with either of the dominions. This is All India Radio I met Pakistan's Prime Minister and other ministers, said Sadiq, but it was of no use. Bakshi Ghulam Muhammad's experience was to the same effect. The Pakistani leaders, he said in the middle of November 47, were unwilling to let the Kashmir issue be decided by a referendum. The Pakistani leaders were reported to have said that unless Sheikh Abdullah pledged to Pakistan that the National Conference would solidly vote for the state's accession to Pakistan, they could not agree to a referendum. That suggestion was totally unacceptable to the leaders of the conference. In dealing with Pakistan's plea that accession was obtained by fraud, it will also be relevant to refer to another significant factor. I have already indicated how the Maharaja was, was compelled to enter into an agreement of succession hurriedly under the stress and strain caused by the invasion and the threat to his own security consequent thereon. After India took the precaution of following a strictly constitutional procedure, her armies began to move into Kashmir to support Kashmir, which had then become a part of India. The timetable of the movements of the Indian armies as recorded in contemporaneous official documents, is eloquent on this point. On the 24th of October, the Commander-in-Chief Indian Army, 
received information that tribesmen had seized Musfarabad. This was the first indication of the raid. Prior to this date, no plans of any sort for sending Indian troops into Kashmir had been formulated or even considered. On the morning of the 25th, we were directed to examine and prepare plans for sending troops to Kashmir by air and road in case this would become necessary to stop the tribal incursions. This was the first direction which we received on the subject. This is no steps had been taken prior to the meeting to examine or prepare such plans. On the afternoon of the 25th of October, we sent one staff officer of each, the Indian Army and RIAF by air to Srinagar. There they saw officers of the Kashmir State Forces. This was the first contact between the officers of our headquarters and officers of the Kashmir State Forces on the subject of sending Indian troops to Kashmir. On the afternoon of the 25th of October, we also issued orders to an infantry battalion to prepare itself to be flown at short notice to Srinagar in the event of the Government of India deciding to accept the accession of Kashmir and send help. On the morning of the 26th of October, the staff officers returned from Srinagar and reported on their meetings with officers of the Kashmir State Forces. On the afternoon of the 26th of October, we finalized our plans for the dispatch by air of troops to Kashmir. At first light, on the morning of the 27th of October, with Kashmir's instrument of accession signed, the movement by air of Indian forces to Kashmir began. No plans were made for sending these forces, nor were such plans even considered before the 25th of October, three days after the tribal incursions began. This timetable shows that the military authorities began to contemplate the possibility of having to help Kashmir only after they definitely knew that the attack on Kashmir had in fact begun, and it was after accession was completed that actual help was sent. The Indian forces were in fact sent by air, and it was providential that they reached Srinagar in the nick of time. As Maurice Cohen has observed, if the Indian forces had reached Kashmir, just a few minutes later, the airfield might well have been in enemy hands. The theory of fraud, which had been conveniently and dishonestly set up by Pakistan, would necessarily postulate much earlier preparation and planning on the part of India. If that had been so, it would be unimaginable that India should have left the task of sending in her armies to the very last moment. Such a course is plainly inconsistent with a previous plan or scheme. According to Menon, Lord Mountbatten had said at the time of the airlift that in all his war experience, he had never heard of an airlift of this magnitude and nature being put into operation at such a short notice. It is therefore plain that the plea made by Pakistan before the Security Council that Kashmir's accession to India was obtained by a fraud is wholly unjustified. When we consider Kashmir in retrospect, the conclusion is thus inescapable that Kashmir has validly, finally, and irrevocably acceded to India and is and will always continue to be an integral part of India. In dealing with Kashmir in retrospect, there is one more point which it is necessary to examine. It has been asked by several well-meaning friends of India who have not carefully or fully considered all the relevant facts in regard to the dispute between India and Pakistan, 
why does India not keep her promise to hold a plebiscite? Even such an enlightened and progressive writer as Barbara Ward has observed that one of the weaknesses in India's posture over Kashmir is its unwillingness to keep its promise of supervised consultation. As I have indicated in my introductory remarks, it was this precise question which I was asked several times during my tour of the states. Let me therefore make an effort to answer this question as clearly as I can. I have already referred to the statement made by Lord Mountbatten in accepting the accession of Kashmir to India. That statement referred to the necessity to ascertain the wishes of the people, and it did not necessarily postulate plebiscite properly and technically so-called. The said requirement was a general requirement and can well be regarded as having been satisfied when the Constituent Assembly was elected and after the Constitution was adopted, election followed and popular governments took over the administration of Kashmir. But it must be conceded that express reference was made to the plebiscite in India's complaint presented to the Security Council. In her complaint, India had averred that after certain conditions to which specific reference was made were satisfied, it would be necessary to hold a plebiscite to ascertain the free and unfettered will of the people of Jammu and Kashmir as to whether the state should accede to Pakistan or to India. Nehru had gone a step further when he had declared on the 2nd of November 47, we are prepared when peace and law and order have been established to have a referendum in Kashmir under international auspices. This statement, however, was interpreted by Nehru himself on the 21st of November. This is what Nehru said. It is not clear to me what the United States organization can do in the present circumstances in Kashmir until peace and order have been established. We are convinced that Sheikh Abdullah's administration is based on the will of the people and is impartial. Only he who goes to Kashmir and sees things for himself can appreciate this. Moreover, we have pledged that so long as our forces are in Kashmir, protection of all sections of the community will be their first and sacred duty. This duty will be discharged without fear or favor. I have repeatedly stated that as soon as the raiders have been driven out of Kashmir or have withdrawn and peace and order have been established, the people of Kashmir should decide the question of accession by plebiscite or referendum under international auspices such as those of the United Nations. By, the, by this declaration, I stand. On the 25th of November 47, Nehru expressed his views in these words. We cannot treat with freebooters who have murdered large numbers of people and tried to ruin Kashmir. They are not a state, although a state may be behind them. We cannot desert the people of Kashmir until the danger is past. If the Pakistani government is sincere, they can stop the entry of these raiders and thus exhilarate the return of peace and order. After that, let the people of Kashmir decide and we shall accept their decision. But if this armed conflict continues, no opportunity is given for the people to decide by peaceful means and the decision gradually takes shape by the sacrifice and power of the people in this conflict. He also added, Kashmir and India have been bound together in many ways 
from ages past. These last few weeks have forged a new link which none can sunder. It is in the light of this clear exposition by Nehru himself that I will now proceed to consider the question why India is not willing to hold a plebiscite today or at any time in future. The first answer to this question is that the time to hold the plebiscite has long passed. The resolutions to which I have already referred clearly, precisely, and specifically indicated the sequence of steps which Pakistan and India were required to take. The first basic requirement was that Pakistan had to comply with her obligations within a reasonable time. It was only after the Commission certified that this part of her obligations had been discharged by Pakistan that the next stage for India to withdraw gradually her forces from Kashmir was to arrive and the stage for holding the plebiscite came last. If Pakistan blatantly refused to comply with her own obligations, how can India be expected to hold the plebiscite? It is surprising that in all the debates which have been taking place before the Security Council on Kashmir from year to year, Pakistan has never been asked pointedly why she failed to comply with her obligations within a reasonable time. If the Security Council wisely decided that plebiscite would be the last in the series of acts which would bring to a close the dispute about Kashmir, surely everyone interested in the enforcement of the relevant revolutions should first and foremost ask Pakistan why she has failed to comply with the resolutions within a reasonable time. The failure of Pakistan to comply with her obligations up to date is a complete answer to the question put to India as to why she does not agree to the holding of a plebiscite. The next answer to this question is an answer based on constitutional law. But it must not, it must not be forgotten that whilst we are dealing with the problems of the plebiscite and the status of a country, points of constitutional law cannot be brushed aside as technical or legalistic. They have a vital bearing on the decision of the question, and their effect cannot be ignored. During the time that the proceedings have been taking their very long course before the Security Council, history has not stood still. Events have been marching in this part of the world, and India has given herself her constitution, and so has Kashmir given herself her constitution. As I have already indicated, the effect of the two constitutions clearly is that no change can be made in the constitutional status of Kashmir as a part of India without the amendment of the constitutions themselves. If a change is intended to be made peacefully, democratically, and according to law, it cannot take effect unless the constitutions are suitably amended. The presence of the two constitutions so completely alters the whole concept underlying the promise of holding a plebiscite that the said promise has, in constitutional terms, become impossible of performance. When India agreed that the plebiscite should be held in due course after the conditions specified by her as conditions precedent had been satisfied, it might have been competent to the government of India to make that promise. But as a necessary consequence of the relevant provisions of the Indian Constitution, it is now completely outside the competence of the government of India to make such a promise. The executive powers of the government of India do not allow the cession of any territory 
which is included within the territories of the Union of India. And so the promise of a plebiscite, which may conceivably have been valid when it was made, is no longer valid. That is another constitutional answer to the question. Besides, if the promise made by India is regarded as an international commitment, India is perfectly entitled to rely on the principle rebus sic stantibus in avoiding the performance of the promise. This doctrine, which is somewhat akin to the doctrine of frustration in the law of contract, provides that a state is exonerated from its obligation under an international undertaking if there is a vital change in the circumstances existing at the time the obligation was undertaken. There have been such vital changes in the material circumstances since 1947 that it would be impossible to claim the performance of the undertaking now. Nineteen long years have passed by since India presented a complaint to the Security Council. The complaint was presented in the fond, though as it now turns out to be futile hope, that the Security Council would go into action forthwith, that peace would be restored immediately, and before anything of constitutional significance took place in Kashmir or India, a plebiscite could be held. But these hopes were completely belied, and 19 years, which have been packed with significant events, have passed by. It is, I think, naive for any country to suggest that even after the passage of such a long time, and even after several significant events have radically altered the situation, India should be expected to hold a plebiscite. The fact that with the passage of time, it will be more and more difficult to hold a plebiscite was communicated by India on different occasions to the appropriate authorities and was publicly announced by her from time to time. In his talk with the UNCIP on the 13th of July 48, Bajpay had clearly expressed this point in these words. She said he, if the future of Jammu and Kashmir was to be determined by the arbitrament of the sword, then, without in any way wishing to utter a threat or use the language of menace, I should like the Commission as realists to recognize that the offer of plebiscite could not remain open. If Pakistan wanted a decision by force, and that decision went against Pakistan, she could not invoke the machinery of the United Nations to obtain what it had failed to secure by its chosen weapon of force. After hostilities had ceased and peace had been restored, the people of Kashmir would be free to determine both the form of their interna internal government and the nature of their relations with India, but Pakistan could have no lot or part in that process. It is really astonishing that Pakistan's plea to India to hold the plebiscite should be allowed to be raised even after it is proved that Pakistan had not discharged her obligations. And it is also shown to have attempted to force Kashmir into accession with her by the use of force. Let it always be remembered that at the time when India presented her complaint, Pakistan had disputed her complicity in the invasion by the raiders and pretended that the accession was an act of fraud and had been precipitated by a genocide practiced by Kashmir against her Muslim citizens. In considering the question about the holding of a plebiscite today, how can anyone forget the subsequent act of aggression committed by Pakistan in 1965? On this occasion again, Pakistan protested her innocence and denied her connection with the infiltrators who trespassed into Kashmir in small groups in the hope that they would be able to raise a rebellion inside Kashmir. I have already referred to this aggression 
how it was inspired, how it was repaired, and how it came to an end. It seems to me completely fantastic for Pakistan to suggest that what she failed to achieve by force on two occasions, she should be allowed to attempt to secure by the holding of a plebiscite. The plea that the plebiscite should be held cannot, on elementary considerations of international propriety and decency, be permitted to be raised by Pakistan, having regard to her conduct in 47 and 65. It would, I think, be pertinent to ask in this connection, would any self-respecting independent country agree to the holding of a plebiscite when it is abundantly proved that Pakistan made two desperate but futile attempts to conquer Kashmir by force? Do international morality and ethics permit one country to attack another with the object of annexing a part of that other country and, on failing to achieve that object, claim that the plebiscite should be held? The act of aggression committed by Pakistan in 1965 makes any plea for the holding of a plebiscite by Pakistan wholly illegitimate and entirely untenable. Apart from these considerations, which I believe are decisively in favor of India, there are some other aspects which also are material. Corbell has explained his experience in regard to such plebiscites by observing that these plebiscites had turned into mere instruments of propaganda pressure and falsification, and he has cited those conducted by Hitler and by the communists. Zafrullah Khan, to whom Corbell expressed this opinion, realized, but he insisted that it was up to the United Nations to secure conditions conducive to a free plebiscite in Kashmir. Let me at this stage quote what the economist had to say on the practicability of the plebiscite as it was contemplated even in 1947, says the economist, there is a talk of popular referendum in Kashmir to decide the issue. But in such a vast and mountainous territory, a referendum would require hundreds of external observers if it is to have any validity, and such observation should be hard to arrange. The economist then asked, would he, the United Nations plebiscite administrator, be able to prevent communal massacres and fresh fighting after a plebiscite? For whichever side wins, will tend to take drastic action to settle accounts with the losers. A partition with prearranged and orderly transfer of population based on the lessons of the Punjab may still be the better way of clearing up the Kashmir tangle, and it is yet possible that India and Pakistan will be able to agree on a boundary line before the heat of plebiscite campaigning is turned on. Dixon, in his report, has expressed the same apprehension. The state of Jammu and Kashmir, he says, is not really a unit geographically, demographically, or economically. It is an agglomeration of territories brought under the political power of one Maharaja. That is the unity it possesses. If, as a result of an overall plebiscite, the state as an entity passed to India, there would be large movement of Muslims and another refugee problem for Pakistan, who would be expected to receive them in very great numbers. If the result favored Pakistan, a refugee problem, although not of such dimension, would arise for India because of the movement of Hindus and Sikhs. The repercussions with the holding of a plebiscite is bound to create, to which the economist and Dixon have referred, cannot be ignored. The holding of a plebiscite would not merely be a question of the two states relapsing into conflict. It would immediately raise the problem of minorities in both the countries. This aspect was expressed by Nehru himself on the 3rd of September, 53. He said, if we aim, as we must, at closer 
and cooperative relationship between India and Pakistan, we must find a solution of the Kashmir problem, which is not only satisfactory to the people as a whole there, but is also achieved without bitterness and a sense of continuing wrong to India or Pakistan. While the interests of the people of Kashmir are paramount, these are, there are also certain national interests of India and Pakistan which come into conflict over this Kashmir affair. It also happens that a very great deal depends not only on the solution of the problem, but even more so on the manner of doing it, because that manner will have far-reaching consequences both in India and Pakistan in the present and in the future. You will understand what I mean. The large minorities in India and Pakistan will be affected by that solution. If it is wrongly done, then the position of these minorities might well suffer and new problems be created, even bigger than the one of Kashmir. We must at all costs avoid this. India has still not forgotten the terrible events which overtook large portions of a territory immediately after partition. Exodus of populations, communal riots, massacre of innocent citizens, and the trail of human suffering and misery, which was witnessed both in India and Pakistan soon after partition, are a grim and terrible warning to all of us to avoid the recurrence of such a situation. And there is no doubt that such a situation will arise if a plebiscite is held and communal passions are allowed to be roused. Under the leadership of Nehru, and also after his death, India has been making a consistent and dedicated effort to build up a progressive, secular democracy, unlike Pakistan, which is avowedly a theocratic state. India makes no distinction between the citizens by reference to their religion, language, caste, or creed. In India, live peacefully more than 50 million Muslims, and they are spread throughout the length and breadth of India and are an integral part of the Indian community. If a plebiscite is allowed to be held, it would inevitably be preceded by extravagant propaganda in which communal and religious passions would be aroused. It needs no imagination to realize that such propaganda will let loose communal fury on an unprecedented scale, both in India and in Pakistan, and that will inevitably give rise to a grave threat to the safety, prosperity, and progress of the minorities in both the countries. Political power in Pakistan, which has been harping on Kashmir ever since Pakistan was born, may choose to become blind to these important human aspects of the problem. But secular India cannot adopt that course. The impact of the religious and communal propaganda, which would inevitably precede the holding of a plebiscite, on the healthy secular structure of the Indian community is a very vital consideration which determines India's attitude and approach in this matter. When India claims that Kashmir is a symbol of Indian secularism, it is not an idle boast. It is not even a merely debating point. It speaks for the profound faith and belief of Indian nationalism. India is determined to build up a secular society under its constitution, and Kashmir, which has acceded to India, is inevitably and irresistibly treated as a symbol of Indian nationalism and secularism. The Muslim citizens of India more than the Hindu citizens, would therefore be more articulate and vigorous in insisting upon avoiding at any cost the catastrophe which would necessarily ensure if the wild flood of communal propaganda is let loose on the eve of a plebiscite. India's refusal to entertain any proposal to hold a plebiscite in Kashmir is thus based 
unconstitutional, legal, political, and above all, human grounds. It is not based on the fear that she may lose the plebiscite. It is based on the fear that whatever happens to the plebiscite, irrational, blind, wild forces of religious fanaticism and bigotry would be let loose. And that is the one danger which India is passionately determined to avoid. In this context, it is of utmost importance to state clearly and unambiguously that India's reluctance to hold a plebiscite arises from the basic and fundamental fact that she genuinely fears that whatever the result of the plebiscite, her secularism will be exposed to the very grave risk of resurgent military chauvinism on the part of the majority communities in both India and Pakistan. It is for these cogent and convincing considerations that India finally, categorically, and definitely says no to any proposal to hold a plebiscite in Kashmir now or any time hereafter.